Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 12, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, I decided to take a break. I should say this week, I decided to take a break from the wisdom of Solomon. I didn't think I could do it justice in the amount of time that I had to prepare. So I decided instead to do something that may be even more timely. This is the unpardonable sin. And it will be a review of a paper written by Clifton Emmerheiser. While the Dindu apocalypse has apparently subsided, at least for a time, with each new wave of Negro aggression, with every new chimp out, it seems that a greater number of white Christians become aware of the fact that the differences which we have with Negroes, or niggers, if you will, are certainly more than skin deep. However, the spineless and effeminate capitulation of so many liberal politicians and cuckolded law enforcement officials is only going to further embolden the beasts. And it is inevitable that a complete breakdown of the rule of law will become manifest in many places in America and in the other nations of Christendom. That is the true objective of the Antifa and Black Lives Matter movements, to wear down the resolve of Christians, to destroy the constructs of Christian governance, and to plunge us all into anarchy, a process which has always resulted in tyranny. This is one aspect of world history that, sadly, far too few white people understand. That the rule of law in the modern world is a product of Christendom. And those who hate Christ have always wanted to see it destroyed and replaced with laws of their own, mostly the law of the jungle. If they are successful, the result will inevitably lead to a new tyranny of the left and the long-sought victory of global communism. Any kindness which they are shown, they perceive as weakness, and it opens up new avenues for them to exploit. The controlled media and global corporations are on their side, and all of the liberal and progressive politicians are on their side, and all of them have actively helped, actively helped them advance this agenda. The coronavirus lockdowns and recent riots over the death of a career criminal are only the newest phases in an age-old war against Christendom, and their timing was certainly not a coincidence. But this is not new to us. We have not reached these conclusions recently. We have known and have been writing about these things for over 20 years. Of course, as we often point out, Wesley Swift and Bertrand Compare 
and others like them had written about them far sooner, far earlier. Even if we do not always know what form it will assume, when the next attack is launched against our Christian society, we certainly do know who is behind it and who is on the side of our enemies. Where the satanic war against the camp of the saints is prophesied in the revelation of Jesus Christ. For us, there are no allies and there are no neutral parties. All the nations are gathered and one is either a sheep or a goat. There is no third choice. However, for the last 20 years, many supposed identity Christians have claimed that we, and by saying we here, I mean myself and Clifton Emmeheiser, have claimed that we are mean-spirited or worse because of our position towards the so-called or, or the non-Adamic so-called races. This is in spite of the fact that we are told that the good shepherd distinguishes the sheep and the goats on sight and separates them in that same manner. So to this day, very often it seems that we are still only a divisive minority within Christian identity. But we are confident that they themselves, those identity Christians who despise us, they themselves need to repent. That in spite of their supposed knowledge, they still share in the sins of the world. So until other identity Christians agree with us on these important issues and profess that agreement, we will always be divisive, we will always choose to quarrel, and purposely so. There is no option of bargaining with the devil. There is no concession to be made, and there is no concession to be found in Scripture, whereby any acceptance of any of the other races could possibly be deemed righteous. If you are trying to make excuses for people of other races, admitting them into the company of white Christians or into the fellowship of white Christians, then you are on their side. You are a devil. Those who purposely throw the bread of the children of God to the dogs, calling it crumbs, will themselves be thrown to the dogs. That was the fate of Jezebel, who taught the children of God to commit fornication and who would not repent. So in the end, we shall be vindicated because it is our position which is the proper biblical and Christian position. Once the rest of the world is overrun by joggers, all of the so-called identity Christians who endeavor to ignore or marginalize us will be left without excuse. This issue concerning the acceptance of other races certainly does impact the lives of many people, even within Christian identity, as more and more people come to understand rudimentary identity truths, while at the same time more and more white families have members who are race-mixing, which is a form of fornication. 
We would assert that those who teach such fornication, like Jezebel did, are also blaspheming the Holy Spirit, committing the unpardonable sin. So this is not an issue that should be lightly dismissed or considered peripheral. It is central to our cause, and therefore it is even a grounds for fellowship. As Paul had written in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. And unfortunately, that earlier epistle must have been lost at a very early time. Last month, I received a long email letter from a gentleman who professed to have been, to having been familiar with Christiania for a long time, for 15 years, although the website is only 11 years old. But that seemed to be an honest mistake. He said he was listening to a particular series of podcasts, which are probably about five years old now, Pragmatic Genesis. And he became troubled when we discussed fornication and its consequences, because earlier in his life, he had been such a fornicator, a miscegenator or race mixer, and he had children as a result. He certainly seemed to be repentant, and I answered him honestly and kindly. However, that led me to realize that perhaps there was not one single article or commentary that I could refer him to, which fully states our position on this subject. So now I have thought to do that, and I will use a paper that was written by Clifton Emmerheiser as a starting point. According to his own records, Clifton wrote this paper in January of 2007. Only eight months later, for reasons which are lost to me now, Clifton wrote another paper on the same subject titled Unforgivable Sin, a step-by-step -step explanation. And perhaps we shall review that here one day, one day soon. It seems as though perhaps some of his readers did not fully understand what he was saying here. And Clifton also needed to address a denominational teaching which claims that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is only a lack of belief or a refusal to believe. And then they go so far as to claim that therefore Christians cannot possibly commit the unpardonable sin. While in reality, they themselves have been teaching people that it's okay to commit that sin, which is absolutely incredible. They deny Christians can commit an unpardonable sin while they teach them to commit it. That's what they're doing. That's a doctrine only a devil could love. So for now, we hope to elaborate on this, Clifton's first paper on this subject, while also offering some further clarifications. This is The Unpardonable Sin by Clifton Emmerheiser. Over the years, there has been a lot of speculation to just what constitutes the sin unto death, as it's described in the first epistle of John.
The scripture we are referring to is Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 to 33. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, as the King James Version has it, it's much better rendered Holy Spirit, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. They are the words of Christ. There's a sin that cannot be forgiven. Does that mean that the person who committed that sin is going to hell? No, that's not what it means. But the person who committed that sin and who has not repented surely will suffer consequences in the world to come. Christ continues. The words of Christ continue. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good. Now, why would Christ say this immediately afterwards? It must be intricately, intrinsically, I'm sorry, intrinsically connected in its meaning. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by its fruit. The context of this passage, as Clifton responds, the context of this passage to the refers to the race-mixed Pharisees, and yes, they were indeed race-mixed. They had men among them who were not Israelites, who were Edomites, or who were half-breed Edomite Israelites. They were still Edomites. They're still race-mixed. They're still bastards. The context of this passage refers to the race-mixed Pharisees, claiming that Yahshua was casting out devils by the prince of devils, Beelzebub, because they constituted an adulterous generation, brings the process of miscegenation into play, which is our subject. One must read from verses 25 to 36 of this passage to get the gist of it. For the duration of his ministry. Clifton published his long-running series of Watchmen's teaching letters. And while they were four pages long, and in a format which actually contained closer to what I may publish in six or eight pages, he could take his time and elaborate on many subjects because they continued from month to month. But he also wrote these relatively short essays which typically contained four columns on each side of a legal-sized page, but sometimes only three columns on each side of a letter-sized page. And he folded them up like pamphlets, and Clifton called them brochures. He didn't call them essays. He always called them brochures. He called them after the format that they were printed on. Over the years, he learned to play with fonts and font sizes, letter kerning and letter spacing, and word and line spacing in order to make something fit. But he still had to leave things out. 
So here we shall present all of the passage which he cited and more because my format is much more flexible. Everything I write is probably a different length. Every podcast varies by up to an hour in its duration. So reading a much larger portion of Matthew chapter 23 from the King James Version, I will interpolate some of my own comments, starting with verse 22. Then was brought in unto him one possessed with the devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is this not the son of David? So we see that at least many of the people did believe that Yahshua was the Messiah on account of the works which he did. Then then in verse 24, we read, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And that's also a lesson we should learn when we consider Dindu dialectics. Christ continues. And if Satan casts out Satan, He is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebub, I meaning Christ himself, he's speaking here. And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. And it is evident in Acts chapter 19 that the sons of one of the later high priests named Sceva in the King James Version, were indeed doing that very thing. While Paul was in Ephesus, which is about 20 years after the crucifixion, there Luke had written, then certain of the vagabond, the wandering Jews, those who had the curse of Cain upon them, then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. So they were using the name of Christ as a sort of magical incantation, as a talisman. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, and that is the word in Greek for high priest, which did so. So there should be no doubt that they were also doing that at this time, 20 years before. And clearly, it is that to which Christ was referring, these sons of the high priests, walking around Judea and and extorting people for money and trying to perform exorcisms on them. Continuing with Matthew chapter 23, from verse 28. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, 
and then he will spoil his house. By the Spirit of God, Christ warns that he will overcome his enemies, the strong men who had control of the kingdom. And he says, he that is not with me is against me. And he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. And this was the topic of a paper I had written several years ago titled Scatterers and Gatherers, where I also described what constitutes blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But that paper had a slightly different objective, and I did not discuss the possibilities or consequences of repentance. Again, returning to the words of Christ in Matthew, verse 31, Wherefore I say unto you, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. It is not about mere belief. If a man speaks against Christ, he certainly cannot believe Christ. So there is something more to speaking against the Holy Spirit than a disbelief in Christ. But now Christ himself tells us what that something is. And his words in verse 34 help prove the veracity of our interpretation of verse 33. So, from verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by its fruit. And the King James Version in its 1611 dialect of the English language used the masculine pronoun his, where the neuter pronoun its would be more appropriate. O generation of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. How does a man make a tree, good or evil? By race mixing, as the word of Yahweh God says in Jeremiah chapter 2, speaking to that remnant of Judah, that for of old time I have broken my yoke and burst thy bands. And thou said, I will not transgress. That's talking about the captivity of Egypt and the promises given at Mount Sinai by the children of Israel that they would keep the law. And thou sayest, I will not transgress. When upon every high hill and under every green tree, thou wanderest playing the harlot. They did transgress by engaging with the other races, committing idolatry, following after them in their idolatry, their bow worship, and bow worship was a fertility cult. It was a sexual fertility cult. Yet, I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. 
no matter how much they washed and how much soap they had, they couldn't wash the sin from their bodies. The Baal religion of the ancient world was a sexual fertility cult which compelled people to commit fornication. That was the original marriage at the altar. And its purveyors were the Canaanites, who are indeed the antecedents, the ancestors of today's Arabs and Jews and quite a few other people even if they don't know it. Verse 34 proves that we are correct about verse 33 because where Christ told his adversaries that they were a generation of vipers, the Greek word genema properly means offspring. Christ was calling their parents vipers. So they themselves must have been, at least in part, descended from an evil tree. Earlier, in Matthew chapter 7, Christ had spoken of wolves among the sheep, and he said, Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Of course not. So men do not gather sheep of wolves or Israelites of Canaanites. The Edomites, who had taken over Judea by the time of Herod the Great, and had all been converted to Judaism. They are thorns and thistles, as we are told that the ancient Canaanites in the book of Numbers, in the book of Judges, in the book of Deuteronomy, were thorns and thistles. Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, and a corrupt tree, as Christ himself said in the subsequent passage, does not or cannot bring forth good fruit. Therefore, vipers can only produce vipers. His adversaries must have come from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was represented by the serpent, in order to be evil. In order to be an evil tree and not be able to do good, as he said to them here, can you, being evil, speak good things? So now in response to this citation of Matthew chapter 23, Clifton asks, what does it mean here? Make the tree good in verse 33. What does that have anything to do with blaspheming the Holy Spirit? or the Holy Ghost in Clifton's language. As we continue, you will begin to see that making the tree good has everything in the world to do with not blaspheming the Holy Ghost. The reason we don't understand the sin unto death, among many other things, is because many times we inaugurate, which is to begin or introduce, a flawed premise. Notice the naked contradiction that all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. There is actually a naked contradiction here because 
Christ is the Holy Spirit, as he himself had professed in the Gospel of John, I will not leave you fatherless. I will come to you, speaking of the other comforter that the Father would send to the people of Christ in Palestine. Christ said, I will come to you, meaning that he is the Holy Spirit. So, if we can speak against Christ and be forgiven, as he himself said, and if we speak against the Holy Spirit, we cannot be forgiven, as he himself said, then speaking against the Holy Spirit must be something other than mere disbelief or mere despite for Christ. Clifton says, it is evident by the very nature of the statement that the sin or blasphemy against the Holy Ghost has to be something that once committed cannot be reversed. That not even Yahweh can do anything about it. Therefore, what other sin or blasphemy could it be other than the product of race mixing? Once a bastard, always a bastard. No other sin in itself is eternal, an example of nature, so far gone in depravity that repentance is impossible and recovery hopeless. Once a nation race mixes, it is lost. Look at Egypt. Look at every, look at Mexico. Look at every other non-white nation. They're all race mixed. Every individual on the face of the earth who is not white is a bastard in the eyes of Yahweh. And history will indeed prove that out. Later in this essay, Clifton cites Jeremiah 2 in relation to this, as race mixing is indeed the sin which cannot be removed. A bastard's face cannot be washed. There are all sorts of examples of this in Scripture. And Christ even told his apostles that they were clean, but not all, referring to Judas Iscariot, who was also a devil and, apparently, an Edomite. Continuing with Clifton, the word blasphemy in the Greek is Strong's number 988, blasphemia, and is sometimes used, especially in a sense, including the resistance against the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Clifton is citing Judeo-Christian dictionaries here. When one commits miscegenation, one rebels against that convicting power. Actually, miscegenation is an act of rebellion against God who created his creation kind after kind. There's no doubt about that. Sometimes actions speak louder than words. But the greatest blasphemy of all is to promote race mixing by deceitful words. The Tyndale Bible Dictionary defines blasphemy as profane or contemptuous speech or writing or action towards God. In a general sense, blasphemy can refer to any slander including any word or action that insults or devalues another being. 
And I don't quite agree with that because if you call a nigger a nigger, you're basically only speaking truth. If you call a white man who promotes the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit a clown because he's pretending to be a pastor, well, then you're basically only speaking the truth. So Christ called his adversaries serpents and vipers. He wasn't blaspheming them. He was just speaking the truth. The truth is the truth. If you could establish the veracity of the, of the, the charge and the truth behind the reason for the label, then it's not blasphemy. It's simply truth. So simply because the nigger is insulted that you called him a nigger, that doesn't mean it's blasphemy. You just spoke the truth and so on. Without the modern denominational baggage, the Greek word blasphemia is defined by Liddell and Scott as a word of evil omen or profane speech at a pagan religious festival or defamation or slander against men or irreverent speech against God or a God as it was used for centuries before Christ. Clifton is correct, however, to state that blasphemy may consist of actions as well as words. Now he cites Mark, where the same event, which happened as Christ was in Galilee, is recounted from a slightly different perspective, and he says, the language at Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, is even stronger. Verily, verily, I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wheresoever, wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, and I prefer spirit rather than ghost, the term ghost removes an entire dimension from the meaning of the word spirit. It just does. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Spirit has never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. That word damnation simply means judgment. It doesn't necessarily mean that one's going to be destroyed in a lake of fire. It just means judgment. In order to comprehend, this is Clifton's response to, to Mark 3, verses 28 and 29. In order to comprehend the sin unto death, Clifton will actually cite that passage from John a little later on. We need to understand Paul's mission. There's a lot of Paul bashing going on today from a lot of people who simply don't know what they are talking about. That's an entirely different subject which needs to be addressed, but that will have to wait for another time. As I have said, this essay was written in January of 2007, beginning in September of 2005, with Watchman's teaching letter number 89, and extending through April of 2007, and Watchman's teaching letter 108, 
I had written the greater portion of 20 of Clifton's teaching letters, all of which addressed Paul bashing. So the subject was certainly weighing on Clifton's mind at this time. So he says, what is important here to consider is Paul's stated mission at Acts chapter 28, verse 20. For this cause, the words of Paul, as they are recorded by Luke, for this cause, therefore, I have called for you to see you and to speak with you, the you being the elders of the Judeans at Rome, because that for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. Clifton responds to that, and he says, once we understand Paul's primary mission, or commission. We will then understand what Paul did. Now, Paul was the official apostle to what is incorrectly termed the Gentiles. The word in Greek is ethnos, or in a plural, ethne, and means nations. And these are the many nations promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I should interject that Paul himself explained that in Romans chapter 4, that they were the nations to whom he was sent. And again, in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, even though those chapters are poorly understood by denominational Christians, so they twist them into pretzels. And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and if you are a denominational churchgoer, you should request that your pastor give a sermon on the first, perhaps, eight verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll bet he can't. I'll bet he can't do it. I know he can't do it straight. I'll bet he can't do it. But this reflects a dilemma. Clifton's explanation here reflects a dilemma that we always struggle with. He says, therefore, the so-called Gentiles are none other than Israelites. If one has established a flawed premise that the Gentiles, at least in most cases, are non-Israelites, he is, for the greater part, mistaken. And if Gentiles are not Israel, or the ten northern lost tribes, Paul would have said, I am bound in these chains for the hope of Israel and the Gentiles. But he didn't say that, and of course he didn't, because Paul didn't care about non-Israelites, as Romans chapter 9 proves. So this reflects a dilemma with which we always struggle, and that is, where do we start? Every time we write an essay or an article, it is difficult to determine what prerequisite information we must include so that readers may understand our premise. So to explain the fact that the New Covenant is for one race, for our white or Israelite or Adamic race, our modern white or Israelite or Adamic race, we have to provide sufficient information proving first that Adamic people are exclusively white and then that Israel was chosen out of that wider white race 
and then that the covenants, old and new, were established exclusively for the people of Israel, and then that the apostles had taught that same thing, and then that the white nations of modern times did indeed descend, to a great extent, from the ancient Israelites. How do we do that in one paper to get people to understand what is the unpardonable sin? That is a great challenge indeed. And if a reader does not first understand those things, he is going to reject papers like this one. But to come to understand it, Many other papers must be read and understood where all these things are proven, yet few readers are going to make the effort to accomplish that. So here Clifton finds a simple way to prove it. By merely asserting that all of Paul's labors were for the hope of Israel. Paul also expressed that same thing a little earlier and a little more completely, which Clifton shall cite shortly, in Acts chapter 26. So, if Paul labored exclusively for the hope of Israel, not for Israel and Gentiles, but only for Israel, then the nations, or Gentiles, to whom he brought the gospel must have been descended from those 12 tribes. Or Paul is lying and contradicting himself. But Paul is not lying. While Israel has to be studied for some time, while Christian identity has to be studied for some time in order to prove that, Paul is not lying. Therefore, Clifton's premise is established that Paul labored exclusively for the hope of Israel and therefore the nations that he brought the gospel to must have been Israel, period. Clifton's premise is established and the burden of proof is shifted to the denominational Christians who do not understand identity as it is they who accuse Paul of lying by their wayward interpretations of his words. Christ only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and Paul only went to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, period. And Paul said that himself in, in more than one place. So Clifton further asserts, what we need to do is check these scriptures to see if our premises are Christian. For if our premises are incorrect, surely they are unchristian. When Paul said that his mission was for Israel, was he following his master? If Paul's mission was for Israel, would not our saviors be the same? At Matthew 15, 24, and Clifton always wrote rather concisely, would not our saviors be the same as he himself described at Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. But he, meaning Yahshua or Jesus, but he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Question, if Yahshua was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, 
Why would Paul be sent to non-Israelites? Are we to believe that Paul would be commissioned to something that the Messiah wouldn't do himself? This is what most people claim. Are you beginning to see just how dangerous a flawed premise can be? How do we relate to all this? How do the mainstream churches relate to this? Today we have several hundred churches teaching hundreds of thousands of flawed premises. Is it any wonder then we are in such deep trouble? We have didn't do revolutions all over the country because we tried to take apes out of chains and try to treat them like people. And the Israel identity message is no exception. The Israel identity message is also adversely affected by this, these misunderstandings and these false premises. Sadly, we have so-called identity pastors looking for room in the kingdom of heaven for Mexicans, for niggers, for Chinamen, and every other beast whom they presume to have a God consciousness or to be able to believe in Jesus. Even devils have God consciousness, but they are still devils. And ultimately, they are all condemned to the lake of fire. The Christian identity light, or as we like to call it, compromise identity adherence, all need, they all need to be mocked and reproached continuously until they repent. So Clifton continues with another excellent point. The next thing we should consider is Paul's confession of faith at Acts chapter 24, verse 14. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Clifton says, isn't it amazing how Paul believed the entire, how Paul believed the entire Old Testament and that today we are supposed to deem all the Old Testament done away. And he's referring to the New Testament only Christians. And most Protestant Christians are, from my own experience, New Testament only Christians. The Catholic faith, and I've explained this in um, several of my more historically minded podcasts, that the Catholic faith, the original meaning of the term Catholic, was down whole. That's what it means, according to the whole in Greek. And it was used by Irenaeus in the second century and other early Christian writers to distinguish themselves from, first, the Jews who rejected the New Testament scriptures, and then the Marcionites and other heretics who rejected the Old Testament scriptures. They called themselves Catholic because they accepted the entire body of scriptures. They received the faith from the apostles down whole. That's why they called themselves Catholic. That was the original meaning of the word. And today, 
The only Christians who are truly Catholic are identity Christians. Because Roman Catholics, while the Protestants, for the most part, discard the Old Testament, Roman Catholics, for the most part today, discard both Testaments. They don't really believe either. They're not Catholics. They're catanihilists or catapapists. They only believe according to the Pope. Clifton asks, where did that flawed premise come from? Throwing the Old Testament away. Did Paul ever tell us that the Old Testament was done away? No, he probably quoted from it a couple of hundred times. What did Yahshua say at Matthew chapter 4, verse 4? But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, not the mouth of the Pope. Did Yahshua say, Now that I've come, you could ignore 85% of the Bible? Is there anyone so arrogant that they would say that the entire Old Testament is not the word of Yahweh? Well, it seems there are many. It is evident in Scripture, in the Gospel of Christ, that the men who had considered Christianity a heresy, the men whom Paul addressed, who had considered Christianity a heresy, had believed that only they themselves had the authority of God, handed down through the temple from Moses to baptize and to make propitiation for sins, and to do that for anyone who would convert to their religion by submitting to their rituals of baptism and circumcision. Comparing that attitude to the doctrines of the medieval Catholic Church, as well as the Protestant denominations which it had eventually spawned, the churches have all clearly followed those who had considered true apostolic Christianity to be a heresy. And they continue to consider true Christians to be heretics. Likewise, the Jews did not believe Moses or the prophets. And today's churches instruct Christians to ignore Moses and the prophets. So Clifton continues with that citation of Acts chapter 26, of which we spoke earlier, by asking, what is Paul's hope? What is Paul's expectation? And then citing Acts chapter 26, 6 and 7. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our 12 tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am falsely accused, or I'm sorry, I am accused of the Jews, and Clifton has in here in brackets the word false. I am accused of the false Jews. In fact, this passage, Paul's language here, actually helps to establish the fact that the Jews are not the 12 tribes and that the 12 tribes are not the Jews. The 12 tribes are not Jews. The Jews are not Israelites. Acts chapter 26, 6 and 7. So, if you are a 
denominational churchgoer, which somehow I doubt anybody who listens to me is. But if you are, if you're a churchgoer and you stumble across this podcast, I challenge you to ask your pastor to give a sermon on Acts chapter 26, verses 6 and 7. I will bet he doesn't touch it with a 10-foot pole in 10 years of Sundays. Clifton responds, We see here that Paul's hope had substance. It was a concrete promise made to our fathers, which providentially included all 12 tribes earnestly serving Yahweh day and night with a hope to come. They were serving God. And people may wonder why, if they weren't in Jerusalem, how could they be serving God? And they certainly weren't in Jerusalem, for which reason Paul was sent to nations afar off, as he himself had also explained. Acts chapter 21, Acts chapter 9, chapter 15. They were serving God, albeit in ignorance as they were fulfilling what things were outlined in the prophets that would come of them, of the children of Israel. What things were prophesied of the children of Israel, which Paul had also believed. This is what Christian identity proves, and it is also what Paul taught. So Clifton continues by asking, is this... Same hope, which Paul had, our hope too. Again, what is our premise? Is it a Christian premise? Does this not show that Paul understood that all the 12 tribes were still in existence? Because the Catholic Church and the Jews love to claim that the tribes taken into Assyrian captivity just disappeared. Race mixed themselves out of existence. I've heard all kinds of excuses. When we can pull up some Assyrian inscriptions and damn well prove who they are. Oh, but we could also pull up several chapters in Isaiah or some of the other prophets and prove who they are. And Paul believed those prophets. Clifton says, let's take a look at Hebrews 6.13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. And of course, Clifton is referring to the promises of Abraham, where he told him that he would be the father of many nations. Clifton, I guess, in his short space, which he had for this long essay, and it's relatively long when you've got to squeeze it into a single legal size, which is eight and a half by 14, a single legal size piece of paper. He couldn't elaborate on what the promises to Abraham were, but any Christian should be able to read Hebrews 6.13 and recollect what Clifton was referring to. He says... Next, let's take a look at Hebrews 6, verses 16 to 18. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. In other words, if Abraham's seed became many nations, and we could identify those nations, then this, the argument's over. 
We're in God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. The fact that Abraham's seed would inherit the world and all the other promises made to Abraham. The present-day churches had the wrong premise from the beginning. Ab initio. That's Latin for from the beginning. Since, to a great extent, they had initially followed the school of the Alexandrians, Clement, Origen, and Eusebius, and others, the earliest of whom were former Gnostics, and they taught replacement theology. They did not follow Paul, who taught fulfillment theology, covenant theology, fulfillment theology, the actual fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the children of Israel. Today they teach Dindu theology. Clifton, continuing with Clifton, it is important to have a proper premise as it determines our conclusions and understanding. Let's now go to Jeremiah chapter 14, verses 7 through 9, to see what kind of hope we should have. O Yahweh, through our iniquities, I'm sorry, though our iniquities testify against us, do thou it for thy name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against thee. O the hope of Israel, the Savior thereof, in time of trouble. Why shouldest thou be as a stranger in the land, and as a wayfaring man that turns aside to tarry for a night? Why shouldest thou be as a man astonished, as a mighty man that cannot save? Yet thou, O Yahweh, art in the midst of us, and we are called by thy name. Leave us not the hope of Israel, connected to the concept of the salvation of Israel from their captivities. Clifton responds, and he says, First, we should inquire just what people are called by thy name. This is what Yahweh charged Israel with. And let's see where it all goes. It can go right to the ultimate sin of the flesh, the unpardonable sin. Did you ever wonder why the Almighty destroyed nearly an entire continent? Clifton refers to the race mixing in the days leading up to the flood of Noah. What sin is so great that he said it would be better if he destroyed them? I hope we can begin to see the enormity of this type of sin and why many don't relate to this type of sin today. Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of Yahweh, ye children of Israel. For Yahweh has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of Elohim, or God, in the land. By swearing and lying, and killing and stealing, and committing adultery, They break out, and blood touches blood. 
Now, Clifton elaborates by describing his expectations. And we see this much more clearly today than even 13 years ago when he had written this. We're headed again for the days of Noah, where blood touches blood, as also in Hosea chapter 4, verse 2. And looking at reality, it's already after the fact. All kinds of loose living, killing, street violence, robbery. But the killing of the unborn goes beyond all comprehension. There's a blood debt somewhere that is going to have to be paid. How does all this, which we see going on today, relate to the final stage of things? Here we see the Bible defining adultery as meaning blood touching blood. The word touch in the Hebrew is to lay the hand upon, euphemistically to lie with a woman. It's not the swearing that is blood touching blood. It's not the lying that causes blood to touch blood. And while killing is bloody, it is not blood touching blood in the context here. Again, it's not the stealing that causes blood to touch blood, but the committing of adultery that causes blood to touch blood. Actually, the Hebrew does not say blood touching blood, but bloods touching bloods. And I must interject that the Hebrew term for blood, where it appears in the plural, was often, but not always, an idiom for bloodshed. However, here the context is adultery. The immediate context is adultery, and therefore we must know that such adultery, which in the Hebrew describes sex in race mixing as well as having sexual intercourse with another man's wife, is indeed a form of bloodshed. Paul had urged in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, flee fornication in the New Testament. Fornication was usually the word which was used to describe race mixing. That could be established in Jude verse 7 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and other places. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is without the body. But he that commits fornication sins against his own body. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is within you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? Therefore, teaching men to commit fornication blasphemes that Holy Spirit, which is within all true Christians. Continuing with Clifton, he is still discussing Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, when it mentions controversy in verse 1, it is speaking as a judicial ground of complaint, and he makes some citations of other verses which contain the term. And inasmuch as all 12 tribes of Israel are under Yahweh's marriage covenant, he can prosecute that legal claim in any manner he sees fit. And that legal claim is not restricted to any individual tribe, but, or perhaps Clifton meant to say, or, any individual member of one of those tribes. 
So what it all boils down to is this. If any individual member of one of those 12 tribes imagines that he is an exception to the rule, he is sadly mistaken. And Clifton cites Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. The passage Clifton refers to from Hebrews 12 explains, For whom the Lord loveth, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all, meaning all the children of Israel, because the prophecies, there are many prophecies, the prophecies tell us, such as in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11, or in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, that all of the children of Israel would be punished for their iniquities, all of those 12 tribes which Paul professed as having hope. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had our fathers of the flesh who corrected us, and we gave them reverence. We respected our fathers, even after they whipped our asses. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Now, Clifton continues, and I will explain chastening in, in the next few minutes, I believe. Now Clifton continues, when Abraham placed Isaac on that altar, if you are not one of Isaac's descendants, Yahweh has every, I'm sorry, if you are one of Isaac's descendants, Yahweh has every legal right to chastise you by any possible means until he brings you into line. Now, if you don't like those terms, you will have to talk it over with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20 sums it up nicely as follows. And first, I would like to explain Clifton here. Isaac is the only man in known history whom Yahweh demanded that the father place on the altar and dedicate to him. Even though Isaac was not sacrificed because Yahweh prevented the fulfillment of it, the moment Isaac was placed on that altar, he became the property of Yahweh God. If you examine ancient history, you will learn that fathers had property rights over their children. We live in a very liberal world today. And the state claims rights over our children and exerts them. But in the ancient world, property, children were property of the father, never the mother. 
if the father decided to divorce the mother and put her out of the house, he had property rights over her too. She had no right to any property. That's just the way it was in the ancient world. It might seem cruel, but that's a patriarchal society that God created, and that's the way it should be, because that's the only way to keep families in line. Father had property rights over the wife, over the children. If the, the wife wanted to leave, fine, get up and leave. You can't take anything with you. You own nothing. So Abraham, having property rights over Isaac, when he placed Isaac on that altar, he was turning those property rights over to God. If you read the ancient Greek tragic poets, when you lay something on the altar of the God, it becomes the property of that God. Likewise, in the ancient inscriptions and legends in Mesopotamia, a man would want to make a donation to a temple and gain the favor of the God. He would think, right? That's how the pagans thought, superstition. And he would think that if he put some gold on the altar, he could gain the favor of the God. So when he laid the gold on the altar, it presented it to the priest, laid it on the altar. It became the property of the temple. It was considered the property of the God. Now, in the ancient temples, the priest would go and loan that gold out on usury. <laughs> but the temples were always also banks, and they were houses of prostitution, and, and they were entertainment centers. They were many other things. But when you laid that gold on that altar, it became the property to God. That's how it was in the ancient world. When Abraham laid Isaac on that altar, even though Isaac wasn't sacrificed, Isaac became the property of the God. I believe it was Jephthah who is said to have sacrificed his daughter. She didn't lament her life. She lamented her virginity because she was going to be dedicated to the service of a temple. She wasn't going to be sacrificed. That's not what that means. She wasn't going to be killed on an altar. So that's how it worked. And, and you have to read a lot of ancient histories to figure that out. I, I would suggest starting with Herodotus and, and Euripides and Aeschylus. And all of this will become perfectly manifest. I've already talked about a lot of this in, in programs titled, um, a podcast titled Hebrew, Greek Culture is Hebrew. That's it. Greek Culture is Hebrew. It's an old podcast at Christogenia. I think I did it in 2010. So that's the end of that digression. There will probably be a few more. When Abraham placed Isaac on that altar, he became Yahweh's property. All of his descendants, by extension, became Yahweh's property. And the rest of world history would revolve around Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. And that's the way it is to this very day, that they would become the predominant figures or tribes in world history. And they did. But denominational Christians will never understand this, any of it. All of world history, since their adulthood and since they grew into populist nations, has revolved around interactions between Jacob and Esau especially since the time of Christ. 
but it was going on before then, too. We just can't see it in those terms. Clifton continues, and he had cited 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, to show that Christians are true Christians, or Israelites, descended from Jacob, and they don't own themselves. They're owned by God. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is within you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The children of Israel, all of them, were and still are Yahweh's peculiar possession. Now, he also possesses the children of Esau, but they are vessels of destruction, and the children of Israel are vessels of mercy. So we read in Deuteronomy chapter 14, For thou art a holy people unto Yahweh thy God, and Yahweh has chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself, above all the nations that are upon the earth. And at that time, all those nations were all the white nations upon the earth. Egypt, Assyria, Persia, Media, and, and Ionia, and so on and so forth. Then in the 135th Psalm, For Yahweh has chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, which evokes Exodus 19.5, but you are a chosen, and it says generation, but the word means race. But you are a chosen race. If Peter was writing to a chosen generation, then nobody has been chosen since the first century. And this is all nonsense, because that generation died in the first century. Peter was writing to a chosen race, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Even though they were scattered into many nations, they were still one nation, the children of Israel, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness, the children of Israel. Read the prophecies in Isaiah were said to be sitting in darkness into his Marvelous light. Next, where Peter is addressing Christian assemblies in Anatolia, in verse 10 of that same chapter, he indicates that they were indeed a fulfillment of promises made to the same ancient children of Israel found in Hosea chapter 1. And he says, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. Peter was not taking those words of Hosea in reference to Israel and applying them to anyone other than Israel as they applied exclusively to Israel and to nobody else, and they couldn't have applied to anybody else. The denominational churches assume that Peter was taking those words out of context and applying them to another people, and that's a lie. Like Paul, the people to whom Peter wrote were also some of the lost sheep for whom Christ had come. Now Clifton concludes this part of his premise, and he says, As for this humble servant, 
I am so happy I am bought and paid for. I wouldn't have it any other way. The premise, is, the premise here is, Israel is Yahweh's inheritance, and we legally belong to him come what may. If we are of ancient Israel, we are bought and paid for in the blood of Christ. And we cannot change that one way or the other. Our ancient ancestors were surrendered to God by their father, Abraham. And there's no taking ourselves back. Men cannot amend the covenants of God, as Paul explained in Galatians chapter 3. Men cannot add other races or individuals other than Israel to them, and they cannot remove any Israelite from them. The children of Israel sold themselves into sin, and Christ bought them back because God promised to buy them back. Now Clifton, speaking in reference to the immutability of the covenants, cites a messianic prophecy found in Isaiah, and he says, but this subject, this brings up the subject of who are not Yahweh's inheritance. Isaiah chapter 63 from verse 17. O Yahweh, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and hardened our heart from thy fear? Return for thy servant's sake the tribes of thine inheritance. The people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. Clifton asks, our adversaries? Who are they? If one were to dissect verse 18 here, it would require an enormous amount of material from the Bible and history to analyze. And, like I said at the beginning of this presentation, and there are few who are willing to take the time and effort to do it. Then in Isaiah 63, 19, we are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. Now, we can imagine that when Clifton wrote this, he must have had the compromise identity pastors or the so-called C.I. Light crowd in mind, as he refers to Dave Barley of America's Promised Ministries, and he says, where are Barley and company on this verse? Who are all those who are not called by thy name? Who are the them and they? Again, what is the biblical premise here? There are different kinds of people, are there not? And Yahweh has a chosen people. This scriptural witness hardly supports the unholy doctrine of universalism, does it? Should not our hope be the same as Paul's hope, which is in turn the same as Yahweh's hope? But Israel became a stranger to the covenant. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens, and actually the Greek term is alienated, from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers, or estranged, from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without Yahweh in the world. 
But now, in the anointed Yahshua, you who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, made near. For he is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of the partition between us. That middle wall Paul was speaking about was the partition between the Israelites of Judea and the Israelites scattered abroad, who were much more numerous. But there was still a partition, the middle wall of the partition. There was still an enclosure around, the, a, a, an allegorical enclosure around the body of the children of Israel. Clifton says, Colossians 1.21 puts it this way. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies, actually that should probably be odious, I believe, in your, in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. You can't reconcile something that you didn't have in the first place. You cannot be estranged from something that you didn't belong to in the first place. Actually, the Israelites had forsaken the covenant, for which reason they were put off and divorced by Yahweh. For that reason, they became estranged from the covenants of promise. But they were still bound by those promises, whether they acknowledged it or not. And the gospel of Christ is the announcement that they were being called back to be reconciled to God through him. Clifton returns to his primary subject after endeavoring to prove through the statements of Paul and Tarsus that, and, and the prophecies concerning Israel that the people whom Paul had gone to with the gospel were indeed Israelites. Israelites of that same race where in Deuteronomy it says that a bastard shall not enter the congregation of the law. And that law still stands. Clifton continues, Getting back to the sin unto death, we will take a look at Hosea chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. Ephraim, he has mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knows it not. Yeah, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knows it not, Clifton says, and he's referring to the cake not turned. If you put a pancake into a Skittle and put it on a fire and you don't turn it, imagine what it will look like. Clifton says, in other words, burned very dark on one side and still light on the other, half and half. So here's the final stage. Some of Adam's descendants started mixing with the earthy. Clifton using euphemisms, I guess. Adam is heavenly seed. The earthy are earthy seed, or in modern circumstances, niggers. What happens when you mix heaven and earth together? You get mud. Another scripture to help clarify what we are speaking of is in Hosea chapter 5, verse 6. They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek Yahweh, but they shall not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them.
And before we continue with Clifton, I must interject again. Hosea chapter 5 describes the sin of Israel, idolatry, and the race-mixing fornication by which it was accompanied. Yahweh promises to destroy the bastards, where he says, Now a month, now shall a month devour them with their portions. It was not the Israelites whom he had promised to destroy, as he promises them reconciliation at the end of that same chapter and the beginning of the next, where it says in verse 15, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense, giving them room to repent, giving them room to repent of their race mixing, till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. Then in the first verse of chapter 6, and the chapter divisions are all artificial, they were all added later, they don't appear in the originals. So in the very next verse, which is our chapter 6, it says, come, and it depicts the children of Israel as saying this. It's a dialogue. Come, and let us return unto Yahweh, for he is torn, and he will heal us. He has smitten, and he will bind us up. Clifton continues. Now we're coming to the crux of the meaning of the unpardonable sin. It is when Yahweh withdraws his spirit. And why has Yahweh withdrawn his spirit? Citing Hosea chapter 5 verse 7. They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh. For they have begotten strange children. That's why Ephraim was a cake not turned, half black and half white. Now shall a month devour them with their portions. Clifton says, now let's take a look at Hosea 4.14. I will not punish your daughters when they commit whoredom, nor your spouses when they commit adultery. For themselves, meaning the men, are separated with whores, and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore, the people that doth not understand them shall fall. This also relates to our modern times. Today, men worship sports idols on television, whores as movie actresses, joggers who are predominantly niggers, and their wives and their daughters after 20 years of dad-worshipping niggers run a football up and down the field, their wives and their daughters are now found in bed with niggers. The wives and the daughters will not be punished for this, for their ignorance, but the fathers who brought the idolatry into the home in the first place, they will bear the punishment. It's on them, just like it was on them back there in Hosea 4.14 in 740, 730 AD, I'm sorry, 730 BC, when the Assyrians were about to take all the Israelites off into captivity. That's when Hosea is writing. If you worship niggers on television for 20 years and your daughter brings a nigger home, she thinks she's bringing home one of your heroes. She thinks she's doing something good. You've been worshiping the bastards for 20 years.
How can you expect any different? You deserve it. That's the fruits of what you have brought into your house. It's a damn shame, but it's the fault of the fathers and the husbands. They bear the primary responsibility. So Clifton asks, can you now see the terrible results of the missing ingredient of knowledge? Today, the lack of Yahweh's knowledge is tearing us apart at the seams. And for the most part, hardly anyone really cares. They don't even know that it's a bad thing, that it's sinful for their daughter to end up with Bubba or Sancho and have a bunch of shitlit kids, which are half white and half beast. For that, Clifton says, I will quote Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing that thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. Clifton responds. Take a good, long, hard look around us today and tell me that Yahweh has not forgotten our children. We as a people should be ashamed the sin unto death is being committed by the millions every night in beds all over America and throughout the world. And once the Israel flesh is corrupted, it shall never recover. This was the very reason for Noah's flood. Yahweh destroyed an entire society to prevent a further spread of bastardization of race. Setting Genesis chapter 6, verse 12. And Yahweh looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Again, he says, what kind of a premise do we have? One might be very sincere to the point of honesty about one's premise and be totally wrong. In such a case, it's like playing a game of Russian roulette, and one can either gamble that the denominational churches are right on this issue, and your daughter can marry Leroy, Bubber, and Sancho, and it's no problem that you have a bunch of shit-breed kids. Or one can study the scripture to find out the truth, because it is. If you don't choose to find the truth, it is like playing Russian roulette, gambling, that your pastor is right, and he's lying through his teeth, and he has a big smile on his face and a big bank account to match it. Once again, to mix kind is the last step in Satan's plan because there's no recovery from it. You will notice that at Genesis chapter 6, verse 12, it was the flesh that was corrupted, not initially the spirit. But as goes the flesh, so also goes the spirit. In fact, in the Enoch literature, because of what happened, in Genesis chapter 6, it says that Yahweh God will kill all the spirits of the bastards, which are the demons and evil spirits of the earth. Clifton says, there is no future for a fornicator's children, even in a case of Judah in respect of Er, Onan, and Shelah. We see this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 through 17. 
lest there be any fornicator or profane person such as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. But the real reason why he couldn't have the birthright is that he was a fornicator and profane person. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. And what Esau did, whatever Esau did, he did on his own volition, and it was wrong. He took wives of the Canaanites, the Hittites to be more explicit. The Hittites were the children of Heth. But it is not explained that he first inquired of his parents, and his mother was vexed by what he had done. So his mother made sure Jacob inherited the promise and the blessing. When Esau noticed his error, he attempted to correct it on his own. And once again, even though he realized he was wrong, and you could go back and read Genesis chapters 27, 28, 29 and see this, when Esau realized he was wrong, he went and married a woman of the Ishmaelites without asking dad, so he failed once again. It's like marrying two niggers and your father's pissed off at you, so you think you're going to fix it by going and marrying a spick. It ain't going to work. That ain't no better. You failed again. That's what Esau did. He could never have the birthright which he lost for his race mixing because he could never repent of the error of his ways. Esau should have went, Dad, who should I marry? Continuing with Clifton. At 1 John 5.16, we are informed of the following. If any man sees his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. In other words, we could pray for most sinners, sinners that do not sin unto death. Then, there is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. So there's some sin that we can't pray for, that the Apostle John says we can't pray for, that he would not say that we should pray for. Clifton asks, how shall we explain this scripture? Here we have a sin that, that we're told not to pray for. Why not? Because it's past repenting for. And I would say that as Paul said in Hebrews chapter 12, in relation to the chastisement, which is from God, but if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Chastisement is punishment for correction. The purpose of chastisement is to correct a child. When your son really screws up and does something horrible, and you just have to take him over your knee and put a belt to his ass, you're not doing that to cause physical injury to him. Otherwise, you wouldn't use a belt. You would use an axe. You're doing that in order to teach him that there are immediate consequences for sin, immediate consequences for wrongdoing. And you hope that the next time 
And this works. I know it works. I raised six children at one time. I didn't raise them to adulthood, but that's because the federal government chastised me unrighteously. You hope that the next time the child thinks and doesn't do the sin and you don't have to hit him again. And I know it works from experience. It does work when you correct your children at a young enough age, you never have to lift a hand to them again if you do it right. That's chastisement. Chastisement is punishment for correction. But bastards cannot be connect, corrected. They do not have the spirit of God. How do, you, how do you fix a bastard? The ancient Greeks, and I've cited this line many times, but I still can't remember if it's Euripides or Aeschylus, but I think it's Euripides who said in one of his plays in the mouth of one of his characters, and it is eternally true, the bastard is forever an enemy to the true born. And the first lesson of that is Cain and Abel. Now Clifton returns to Jeremiah. Again, we are told in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16, Therefore pray thou not for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. Clifton says this last scripture is explained in Jeremiah 6.15. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. Therefore they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith Yahweh. Neither could they blush. The people could not be embarrassed on account of their sins, as they saw no sin in their deeds, so they were not ashamed. They could not be chastised and corrected. As Jeremiah chapter 2 attributes that to the fact that they were bastards. So Clifton says, next let's go to Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Israel was holiness unto Yahweh, and the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith Yahweh. Hear ye the word of Yahweh, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. When other peoples or races mingle with Israel, they are offending against Yahweh God, and they will be punished for it. All that devour him shall offend. Every bastard today in a Western nation who is feeding himself off that nation, those spots in our feast of charity, every single bastard will be punished by God because they are offending against God. Their presence alone is an offense. In the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25, the goats are judged not for how they judge, not for how they treat each other. The goats are judged for how they have treated the sheep, and for that, all of them are condemned. Every single one, without exception, go to the lake of fire. 
Clifton continues in Jeremiah chapter 2. Has the nation changed their gods? This is verse 11. Which are yet no gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith Yahweh. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Something which Christ invoked in John chapter 4. And hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Clifton responds, observe in the Hebrew, be astonished means to be appalled, as this is a great sin. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Now what is the fountain of living waters? It's the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Yahweh himself. But notice, these are offspring that are broken cisterns that can't hold that water. Why are the cisterns broken? Yahweh connects with man through the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 verifies that. But these are broken cisterns that cannot contain his spirit. It can only be so due to the process of race mixing. When a product of miscegenation has been completed, it can no longer contain Yahweh's spirit. Thus, a broken cistern. What did you think a broken cistern was? If it were literally a broken cistern, meaning an underground container that can that was used to hold excess water so it could be used at a later date. If it were literally a broken cistern, it could be fixed. But these cistern children of mixed marriages can never be repaired. Thus, they can never contain Yahweh's Holy Ghost or spirit. They are ruined vessels that can't hold the spirit. I had written a two-part series of essays in, or not long before, October 2004, titled Broken Cisterns, and Clifton had published it at that time. Years later, he told me that they were among his most requested reprints. I recollect having commented here in the recent past that those essays were written at a later time than that. Sometimes Clifton's records are confusing because he often reformatted documents and assigned them a later date when he reformatted them. I found an older folder of his documents recently, and I probably have others that I've forgotten about, which I have also preserved separately for various reasons. And evidently, they were written no later than that. October of 2004. I have better records in storage, and perhaps one day I will get them here to my office. I didn't keep a diary, so to speak, in prison, but every day I did spend a few seconds jotting down in a notebook what I had written or studied each day. I did that so I could reference them, reference things myself for several reasons.
Again, Clifton continues in Jeremiah chapter 2. At Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 21 and 23, the broken cistern offspring are referred to as a degenerate plant. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God, or Elohim, as Clifton has. How can thou say, I am not polluted, I have not gone after Baalim? See thy way in the valley, know what thou hast done. Thou art a swift dromedary traversing her ways. In other words, the children of Israel were running around and whoring themselves all over the place. Where Clifton responds, he takes a shot at the heretics who claim that there is such a thing as spiritual sperm, and that is denominational Christianity. It's pretty pathetic that they think that sperm could somehow be spiritual, little sperms floating down from heaven into our brains to impregnate us with denominational Christian doctrine. They would love that, but it just isn't so. Clifton says, now we're getting down to the seed showing, and it's fleshly, it's not spiritual. We should notice the words, how then art thou turned into a degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? In verse 22, it speaks of a sin that won't wash off. For though thou wash thee with lye and take thee much soap, yet thy iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh Elohim. It just can't be washed off. What is the sin that won't wash off? Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 14 through 16, as it gets plainer. Therefore, pray not thou for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them. For I will not hear them in the time that they cry unto me for their trouble. What hath my beloved to do in mine house, seeing she has wrought lewdness with many? And the holy flesh is passed from thee. When thou doest evil, then thou rejoicest. Yahweh called thy name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire upon it. And the branches of it are broken, Clifton responds. Now some commentaries Try to say that the holy flesh is the flesh of the offerings. There's no word at this point that the offerings had ceased. That's just a lie. They just made something up. They just contrived something to try to cover for the truth. Because they can't tell the truth. Clifton says, that could hardly be. It's their own flesh. Yahweh called thy name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. 
The seed is not holy here, and in turn, the flesh is not holy. Once you mix your race, your seed is no longer holy. It's common. Your flesh is no longer holy. It's common. In fact, it's unclean because Yahweh didn't even create it. You're not even a pig. You're just a bastard, and pigs are better. For the same reason, Christ had exclaimed, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 15, and in reference to the Pharisees who had rejected him, every plant which my heavenly Father had not planted, there are races here which God did not create, shall be rooted up. God never created a bastard. Clifton continues by turning to Malachi, and a prophecy which was actually fulfilled in John chapter 8, but which is just as relevant today. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, every man against his brother, by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God. Yahweh will cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offers an offering unto Yahweh of hosts. And this you have done again, covering the altar of Yahweh with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regards not the offering any more, or receives it with good will at your hand. Where it says that Judah had, daughtered the, had married the daughter of a strange god, that is the answer to the earlier question. Has not one god created us? In any event, the passage informs us that we are not all of the creation of God. There are people here who were not created by God. God is not their father. They are every plant which the heavenly father did not plant who shall be rooted up. But this was actually both a statement concerning the sin of Judah personally, which had contributed to the corruption of the ancient kingdom. He had a Canaanite wife who had sons present in Judea. So it was both a statement concerning that sin and a prophecy of what was to come of the Judeans of Malachi's, of Malachi's time. As he wrote not long after the beginning of the period of the second temple. But while Yahweh had mercy on Judah, and he did for the sake of the promises to his fathers, he did not have mercy on Esau, who also had Canaanite wives. And that is evident in Malachi chapter 1, in Ezekiel chapter 35, in John chapter 8, and in Romans chapter 9, that it would be Esau who would corrupt Judea in the second temple period. The adversaries of Christ were actually of Esau and not of Jacob. And the histories of Josephus explain exactly how that had happened. 
So Clifton continues along those lines where he is evidently speaking of the Edomites using the term Esau collectively. And he says, here's Esau crying, weeping and wailing, and Yahweh doesn't hear him. Yahweh does not regard the offering anymore or receive it with goodwill at his hand. So all of Esau's pleading met nothing under his race-mixed condition, these Edomites who had infiltrated and come to control the kingdom of Judea in the second temple period were race mixed. They were part Canaanite. Clifton says, actually becoming bastardized, it's not Adam anymore. They are no longer Adamites. But the subject of the prophecy, as Clifton continues, is still the remnant of Judah in Judea, and particularly the priests who would betray the nation and cause it to be defiled. So he continues. Let's go on to Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Yet you say, wherefore? Because Yahweh has been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did not he make one? Yet he had the residue of the spirit. Now Clifton has a parenthetical note here saying that we're talking about complex things here of a conflict of the spirit and the flesh. And we don't have a premise to deal with it, except we go to the scriptures and believe what it says. Why the residue of the spirit and why one? That he might seek a goodly seed, a godly seed, a holy seed, a holy child. And I don't necessarily agree with that because I believe Clifton was totally misinterpreting the passage, but that's okay. We'll just roll with it and try to interpret it correctly. Therefore, continuing with Malachi 2.15, therefore take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. And in verse 16, Yahweh speaks of putting away. And that's Clifton's remark. This was actually a warning and an indication that there would remain men in Jerusalem who did have the Spirit of God. And Christ came to seek a godly seed, that his gospel would be delivered to his people as he was slain by his enemies. These words are to the priests. The wife of their youth is used here metaphorically both to describe the relationship between the priesthood as the representatives of Yahweh and the children of Israel. So they shouldn't forsake the wife of their youth. They shouldn't forsake the children of Israel. And then it's used more literally to mean that they should stay to their own wives and not mingle their seed where the priests had mingled their seed. And we see this in the book of Ezra, in the book of Nehemiah, that the priests were indeed doing these things. And even after Ezra straightened it out, sometime at some point in the intertestamental period, they started doing it again. So while this verse itself, while Malachi 2.15 is problematical and i don't want to get into all of the details here 
I, I just don't have time for it if we're going to stay within maybe a two-and-a-half-hour program. This verse is problematical. We discussed it while offering a resolution in part four of our Malachi commentary titled Preparing the Way of the Lord. But basically, it's a warning to the priests and an assurance at the same time that there would remain a godly seed, the residue of the spirit. And the verse is poorly translated. Clifton moves towards a conclusion. And he says here with Esau, we're dealing with the same thing that Ezra had to deal with in Ezra chapter 9, verse 2. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves, for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yeah, the hand of the princes and the rulers have been chief in this trespass. It seems that Clifton may have thought that Esau was the subject of Malachi chapter 2 when it was actually the Levitical priests who were, who were the subject. Or perhaps Clifton was taking it for granted that his readers understood that it was Esau with whom the Judeans of the time were mixing, primarily. So, from that perspective, he is correct. But it may be a little confusing to someone who does not understand the underlying historical background. In any event, the passage from Ezra certainly clarifies what is meant by the passing of the holy flesh from the nation in Jeremiah chapter 11, as it begins with the mingling of the holy seed with that which is unholy. Now Clifton ends his essay. If one will look at verses 3, 4, and 5, you'll see how a holy man of Yahweh reacted to this sin. Of, the, of that chapter of Ezra. He tore his hair, his beard, and his clothes, and fell to the earth in shame. What premise did Ezra have that we don't have? In other words, Ezra had a greater foundation of knowledge that's somehow missing among denominational Christians today. The difference is Ezra obeyed Yahweh's spirit, which all Adamites have, and Ezra reacted as Yahweh would have reacted. Ezra's reaction was to compel all of the race mixers to put away their strange wives and the children who were born of them. As we read in Ezra chapter 10, the next chapter, and Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, we have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. In other words, you start race mixing, there's no more hope. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives. And such as are born of them. In other words, the children, the little Neglets and shitlets that you had with those strange wives. And put away such as are born of them, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God, those that fear God, 
and let it be done according to the law, because that's what the law of God demands. Those same commandments that Christ commanded Christians to keep. So the apostles in Acts chapter 15 said that Christians must not commit fornication among just a couple of other things. Ultimately, as the law states, a bastard shall not enter the congregation of Yahweh. There are going to be no Bindu revolutions in the kingdom of heaven. This is just as true in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament. This we know from the words of Christ himself. In Revelation chapter 2, where chastising the church and in, in Thuatira, he says, and I pronounce that Thuatira because it shouldn't be a Y, it should be a U, but mainstream denominational Christians might say Theatira. Christ was chastising the church in Theatira, and he says, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. One goes hand in hand with the other. If your negress or she-boon wife cooks you dinner, which I doubt she would probably ever do, then you're basically eating things sacrificed unto idols because her God is not your God. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed. And then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Adultery comes from a word which means mixing, and that can be established. Moikas has its root in mignumi, which is to mix. And I will kill her children with death the fornicators that wouldn't repent. I will kill her children. He won't kill her. He won't kill those who committed fornication with her, but he'll kill the children. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the hearts and the reins, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. In the spirit of Clifton's method here, we can imagine that he would have asked, what premise did Joshua Christ have that we don't have? And perhaps, why would he kill the children and not those who committed the sin? So it is evident that in the end, all bastards shall be consigned to the destruction of the lake of fire. The presence of a bastard is a blasphemy against God. It is a living example of a violation of his divine law. But as we see in Ezra and in the words of Christ in the Revelation, those who sin in this manner do have room for repentance, even Jezebel, although she herself would not repent. So we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, fornicators, race mixers, right up front, Paul stuck it right up front, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, 
like those city police chiefs we see bending the knee to these nigger criminals, these dindu beasts. They're, they are effeminate. None of them are men. They are effeminate and they are pussies and they are going to receive the judgment of Christ bending before Negroes, getting on their knees before Negroes, groveling, surrendering the rule of law, which is a product of Christian society, to a bunch of niggers and communists. They're disgraceful, groveling for their salary, their pension. Be not deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate fags, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. That word is actually arsenokoites. It refers to sodomites or faggots or what we call gay people. Nor thieves, nor dindu store pillagers. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. The Jew media, they act as an extortion racket. If you say something politically incorrect, they're going to have your job, your career, and everything else they could get from you because you pointed out the fact, like one school teacher recently did here in Panama City, that the rioters don't burn down the food stamp office and she's being persecuted for simply saying that. Nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. There it is clear that a man or woman can be a repentant fornicator and be forgiven for the sin. But the sin is unforgivable insofar as the results of it, the bastard children are irredeemable. They are completely worthless. It doesn't matter how much time and effort you put into them as a parent. At the end, you're going to end up with a pile of ashes. That's it. We cannot force our God to accept the results of our sin. But for those who teach men to commit fornication, there is a greater punishment. Notice in the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 12, that if a man blasphemes the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. If a man is not forgiven in the world to come, that indicates that he shall nevertheless have a part in the world to come in which he shall not be forgiven. So we read in Daniel chapter 12, and at that time shall people, shall thy people be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book, all of the children of Israel. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Only those who have the Spirit of God can be resurrected, as we are told that resurrection is through that Spirit. In one way or another, in John chapter 6, in Romans chapter 8, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and probably elsewhere are we told this. 
broken cisterns that can't hold the spirit cannot be resurrected. So it seems that the children of Israel, whom in this life had blasphemed the Holy Spirit, will be resurrected to shame and everlasting contempt. But if a man repents, as Paul had explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, then ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Yahshua and by the Spirit of our God. All of Israel shall be saved, but perhaps some Israelites will not be so pleased as others with the quality of their salvation. In any event, the time to repent is now, and now is rapidly passing. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, a God who would have nothing to do with Antifa or Dindus or the half-breed bastards that are found spread throughout the crowds who associate with them. And good night.